it does strange things to our minds to start to imagine, you know, what will happen. And the temporality of climate change is very interesting because you have to kind of mediate between what will happen and what might happen. You know, so it's an odd sort of, not exactly science fiction temporality, but it's a, it's a combination of, um, of the imaginary and the science of it. Sarah Nattel is a South African scholar and the director of the Witz Institute for Social and Economic Research at the University of the Witzbatisrand in Johannesburg. Over the past 10 years, her work has focused on post-colonial criticism, urban theory, and literary and cultural studies, especially in relation to Africa and its diasporas. Her current area of interest revolves around water, heavy rainfall, flooding, and hydrocolonialism, and how they intersect with materiality, time, and daily life, but also around how water can be traced and analyzed across works of literary fiction from the African continent. Pluviality, the umbrella term she coined for this purpose, serves as a conceptual framework and a methodological approach to her study of rain in an era of extreme climate emergency. The idea is to try and understand rain and water, not just as weather phenomena, but as part of entire epistemologies and spiritualities in which the human and more than human worlds overlap. We talked to Sarah Nattel about hydropolitics in the global south, about entanglement, multi-spirited waters, and the elemental. We also go into extrapolative science fiction as prefigurative social theory, finding the right language and asking the right questions. You know, I invented the idea when I came across a word in a dictionary when I was looking for something else. And I saw the word pluvial. And I thought that that was an interesting word and I looked it up. And it was about, uh, it was a term that earth scientists use to designate rain that causes flooding. And at the time I was attending a small workshop at my institute Weiser in Johannesburg run by colleagues they were talking about literary ecologies and they were all talking about seas and oceans. And I started to wonder about the relationship between rain and sea. And I thought that this may, might be a contribution that I could make. Um, and that led me to the cyclone, uh, or the typhoon as it's known in the Indian Ocean, um, which picks up huge amounts of rainwater and dumps it as a storm on land. And after that, I started rereading novels or reading novels for the first time because I'm trained as a literary scholar in the first instance and figuring out what they do with rain and then realizing that none of the critical work on these novels had ever noticed the degree to which the novels are full of deluges and rain and storms and flooding 
And I just thought that that was very fascinating. So that's how I came to the idea of the pluvial, and I started to call it pluviality, the condition of rain, as a material universe, but actually as an imaginative universe as well. And I realized that most of the work on environmental uh, change was, was coming out of the sciences, and the humanities had very little to say about this particular part of the the water cycle, the hydrological cycle, and that is rain. So that's how I came to it. And then I understood that as we think about rain and flooding, we have to think about a different timescape because it's an earth infrastructure. So I started to think about that, and I developed the idea of pluvial time. Um, so that if you start to look at a scene in a novel or an artwork or a piece of... Uh, uh, ground and atmosphere out of your window, you have to start to think in terms of a slightly different order of things, timescape. And so I started to work with the notion of pluvial time, and that's how it happened. On the one hand, rain is metaphorical, so it's about emotional deluges and dramas, and it seems to captivate writers uh, and, I think, readers in terms of capturing something about a psychic life and an emotional life. But what became much more interesting to me was the way in which these writers actually wrote about rain as a material, as a material universe. So sometimes heavy rain could be used as a metaphor for imperialism, colonialism, structural difficulties that individuals would encounter in relation to the social. But in other ways, uh, it could be harnessed to reroute an itinerary, to plan an escape. I discovered that certain searchlights in carceral spaces, such as prisons, can't operate through heavy rain. So I started to understand rain as a texture and sometimes as a barrier to human-driven actions and intentions. And then in some of these works, I started to understand that rainwater falling in rivers or falling in dams enabled a reflective surface. And my colleague Isabel Hoffmeyer has written so interestingly about how the sort of colonial novel relied on lots of an abundance of water and it became a self-reflective mirror, right? <laughs> but in the novels I was looking at from Southern Africa, there was very little water. And so I started to think also about waterlessness and rainlessness, which is drought, and how characters would in fact, you know, lie on the stony ground of a semi-arid area and would dream about the inland sea that this landscape once was. And so I started to think about the submerged waters of rain, which are called aquifers, uh, groundwaters, um, kind of earth veins, as one novelist, Mia Kuto, puts it. And so you can see from what I'm saying that rain was taking on many registers, and it was as much material as metaphoric. And we'd simply missed it before. We'd simply not seen it in some of these novels. So I think goes to show that these are really quite brilliant novels because when you can return to a novel for the fourth or fifth time and see something that you've never seen before, 
in this case it's material universes, then it's really got something new to tell you. So I think that, you know, what water does, um, what rain does when it falls and where it falls and how, is something that we're learning about all the time. Um, you know, I mean, I think it's very interesting to think about rain and rivers and how rivers mo move when they're flooding. And so when heavy rain falls, what it does to a river system is very interesting and I think offers us all sorts of ideas and concepts to work with. So one of the um, ideas that I have been thinking about is drift. And drifting is a really fascinating notion um, full of potential to draw into cultural theory and even political theory. Because once again, it undoes the kind of linearity of the modernist project uh, based around particular ideas of progress and so on. And the way a river drifts is precisely the kind of agential realism, as Karin Barad would call it, the agency of the water itself that undercuts human narratives of how water moves. So I think we're learning about that uh, in very interesting ways. Um, I mean, I am very keen to pursue the idea of sort of non-human agencies. And I think collectively, we're trying to get at this more and more. The ways in which things move that are not the ways in which human constructions move, or even humans move through space. Um, and to try to, to learn from that. But I'm also wanting to draw attention to, again, this idea that I've been talking about um, based on work that we're all doing at my institute, Weise in Johannesburg, and again, drawing on Isabel Hofmeyer's work on hydro-colonialism. And I think one also wants to understand and also use all the skills and resources we have learned through the post-colonial project, the ways in which Say, for example, the idea of water itself has been colonized. So one of the ways in which one can decolonize water and rain, of course, is to think about communities that are indigenous or are based in the global south, whose epistemologies really don't make it onto the radar of the Northern Academy most of the time. You know, how they've been thinking about rain for a long time. And I think many of these traditions are very, very deep and very long-standing. They are generally non-secular approaches to rain. So that's one way of trying to think about the decolonization of rain. You know, we tend to assume that um, that because the elements, rain, water, fire, uh, can't themselves occupy or settle a space, that they can't carry sort of relations of power, but of course they do. And South Africa is a very good example of hydrocolonialism in practice, the ways in which cities were formed the ways in which um, water-rich land was distributed in a segregated system and so on, and the ways in which even the histories of mining um, come back to haunt the city of Johannesburg through toxic waters that are now rising from the mine shafts and spreading across the, you know, certain parts of the city and so on. So I, my interest is in thinking about how rain would yeah, operate as an agent, um, but also how it would be implicated um, in ways we haven't thought about yet, in the kinds of power relations that post-colonialism has taught us to think about. So not only where it falls and how it falls, but how we get to how we get to receive rain, or how we might be deprived of rain in particular kinds of imaginaries, but also political systems 
which parts of cities are able to to hold rain and which aren't and so on. So I think this becomes really crucial in a city like mine where in some parts of the city now when you turn on the taps in people's homes no water comes out at all. And so there may be no rainwater in the reservoir or the reservoir might be at the wrong angle for flowing downwards through that suburb and so on. And so all these sort of hydro-infrastructural dimensions that, we, that we're learning to think about are connected. So I'm looking for a vocabulary that is trying to take on all these dimensions um, while a sort of according the planet its own agency, also understanding issues around climate justice, um, which are very embedded in human political systems. within sort of communities of people and histories of thought that are concerned with the ancestral and the powers of um, a kind of an intergenerational haunting, whether that is in terms of spiritual or political traditions or both. Um, there seems to be a very close relationship between uh, spirituality and submersion. And so, a great, you know, we, I, we've always thought of the ancestral as somehow operating in relation to air and atmosphere and that which might be above us uh, and beyond us in the skies above in a certain kind of imagined way. And I think what we're learning now is that so many of these ancestral traditions around rain gods or the powers of Sangomas in southern Africa, um, so spiritual mediums, require in the first instance submersion in water and we're learning too that there are even um, shamanic traditions traditions of shamans and i'm sure this would be the case in latin america as well although that conversation hasn't really started who describe processes of accessing what would be referred to as the spirit world as processes very similar to what it might be for humans to go underwater and so interferences with sound, a kind of a um, losing of consciousness as one loses air in order to access realms that are other than human realms. And so I think that when we look at rivers, and increasingly this is emerging in new uh, novelistic writing, one is also looking for the spiritual, the kind of multi-spiritedness of those waters in relation to um, traditions that are not necessarily the secular traditions as we've come to know them of, of so much Western thought. So that would be one place that I would go to. I think that the underwater is very powerful. You know, even if one looks, and this is work, again, we've been doing collectively in Johannesburg, the, the moment at which a narrative, let's say, whether it's a narrative, a spiritual narrative or a novelistic narrative, goes under the waterline. You know, what happens at that moment? Um, and it's almost always a way of trying to access other than human worlds, spiritual worlds, the worlds of, um, of the submarine in one way or another, to try to enable us to understand what the future of the planet might be, but also what the past of the planet might be. And so in more secular thinking, the ways in which coral works, for example. And if you cut through coral, it gives you a sense of um, planetary time in the way that 
cutting it through an oak tree and looking at the looking at the rings and the trunk would give you. And so I think we're trying to learn about submersion, sort of pluvial time, what it is to submerge an idea underwater in order to see what. So that kind of thing. There are ways in which some scholarship um, is attuning itself to indigeneity, the indigenous, and so on. Um, and I think that that can be very powerful. But I think that the questions of indigeneity when projected onto non-Western peoples, non-Northern peoples, also functions in a way that is um, sometimes reproducing forms of difference and alterity that I think are not particularly useful. And I wondered whether it wouldn't be more helpful to to think in terms of sort of pluri-archives. And so if you take the South African case, um, the ways in which we've thought about it in our work on reading for water, where we reread novels from across Southern Africa with water in mind. And I was, of course, writing about reading for rain. Whether one might not think about the multiple inhabitations of a piece of water from multiple points of view. And so instead of saying, well, you know, we're invested in indigeneity or indigenous notions, in other words, re-operationalizing animism, you know, rediscovering it in the West in the era of climate change. <laughs> um, you know, as someone who locates myself you know, in the global south, it seems to me perhaps more subtle and more politically powerful to be able to say that there are a range of traditions that inhabit these waters. And those would, you know, it, those would really work with the notion which I've written about a lot in my work of entanglement. In other words, these multiple sources drift into each other and become entangled with each other and creolize each other, actually, as they, as they encounter each other. And that seems to me um, a more careful reading that might be more helpful to us collectively as we try to navigate how we put together post-colonial concerns with hydro-colonial concerns or climate change with bodies of knowledge that we've taken a very long time to build together, I think, broadly on the left around questions of resistance, but also questions of entanglement. And I think that the historical archive across land and water tells us to work with notions of entangling multiple traditions rather than signaling out indigeneity um, versus coloniality, which I think that, you know, I think in quite a lot of scholarship and research that happens. Here's one version and here's another version which contests it. But what about um, the things that rain and water do, which, which is they run things together. Things drift together a little bit. They do clash. And I'm not advocating for a kind of a relativism where everything counts in the same way. I mean, I think we understand that power operates through multiple media, including the elemental and this is why concepts like hydro-colonialism are very important. Um, but I think that we would also want to understand the multidimensional 
and very complex sense of the problem of how to read and how to narrate and how to collectively see into a particular element, whether it's water, air, you know, or fire. Um, so I'd be more comfortable with that kind of um, way of way of proceeding uh, in terms of um, doing the work of critique, being aware of the workings of power, but understanding the entanglements of these archives as they change by running into each other and becoming something new and something else in the process. And of course, that's exactly how rivers in flood work. They work via drift and capillarity. They don't have a singular source and they constantly find different ways of running together. This is what we did in our project. We each took one novel from Southern Africa. So it would have been Mozambique, Zimbabwe, Zambia, South Africa. And we followed the waters. We let the waters into that text. For example, reading, reading a character. Uh, there's a particular novel by a very talented Zimbabwean writer called Yvonne Vera, who died some years ago but left extraordinary novels. And there's a novel called Butterfly Burning, which is set in Bulawayo. And so my colleague Confidence Joseph, who works in the Oceanic Humanities, read the main character for the very first time. It's always been read as a city novel. And in fact, she discovers that the character goes down to the river at one point. Bulawayo is a very dry part of Zimbabwe. It goes down to the river, settles on a rock, and goes through a process of submerging herself. The long and the short of it is a, a kind of a suicide, a, a self-immolation but um, a coming back to life through the hydrological cycle, through rain and evaporation and so on. And so a kind of a feminist haunting of a narrative via the properties of water for a female character living in a very patriarchal society and trying to access a kind of a spiritual medium, you know, through rain and evaporation. And so where that left us collectively in the introduction we finally wrote in an article which has received thousands of reads now across the world, because I think it's trying to get at this concept, is that in any body of water that we might approach in the southern African terrain, but also elsewhere, it will be uh, haunted and inhabited by multiple spiritual traditions. And again, I think what we're going to is the entanglement of secular understandings of water. So for example, we might read that body of water in terms of drought, in a particular part of Southern Africa. But also, whether it's a pothole, whether it's a small pool, whether it's a river that's drying up, uh, we have to take it as being inhabited by multiple spiritual traditions. And very often these traditions are carried from sea to inland. So there's work on the ocean within, the, the ocean that we carry within us. And it's a more than wet space. Um, so. Scholars um, Peters and Steinberg have talked about the ways in which the ocean itself can in fact be mist and air or a memory of sea that we carry inland. Which would make sense because rivers run into sea and sea um, by other forms becomes rain or becomes mist or carries inland. 
And so this is what I mean, that in, in, as we start to look at air, atmosphere, rain, mist, uh, rivers, aquifers, we have to take it that they are inhabited by m multiple imaginary histories. And so the work of scholarship and activism, I think, becomes to populate them with all the, all the people uh, and non-human forms, present and absent, that have occupied this space in one way or another. And I think that reanimates the work of literary studies, cultural studies, etc. And it draws us towards very powerful vocabularies of haunting as well, haunting by histories of slavery and dispossession, but also a future haunting by climate change. Now, what happens to a body of water that's been inhabited for thousands of years with spiritual traditions that dries up and is no longer water? Where do, where do those traditions go and how do we read them now? And so, how do we read water in the face of drought? Absent water, water that's gone forever, perhaps. These are really fascinating questions and they're not questions that scientists are asking. But I was approached in my own building in Johannesburg down below us is the first water institute at our university, and it's run by engineers. And I sent our piece of work on reading for water in novels to him. And he wrote back and said, please, can we talk? Because I've understood recently that the kind of scientific models that we're coming up with, with why people relate to water in the ways that they do, for example, in a South African township, or in relation to water crisis in the city of Johannesburg, we're getting stuck at a certain point. And I suddenly realized from the work that you're doing that it is precisely around these animist questions or these questions of multi-spiritedness or of the traditions of the ways in which people are thinking about the haunting of these waters that we can't have a conversation unless we draw them in to figure out what to do next. So I think that's quite an exciting moment. How would one do activism in a township space um, where we know that the waters running through some parts of that township space are toxic waters? They're absolutely toxic for multiple reasons, sort of state neglect, the waters and wastes of industria flowing into them, but they're really not um, waters that should be drunk or inhabited by any bodies and in certain spiritual traditions it becomes important um, baptism for example or being initiated as a spiritual medium to submerge people bodies in those waters um, and yet we know that they're toxic waters so how, how does activism approach those kinds of questions around the toxic waters that flow through our urban spaces um, that would be one way of thinking I mean, another way of thinking would be in relation to gender-based violence, gender activism, feminist work, around the ways in which um, notions of territoriality and struggles around land are often quite patriarchal histories. And so how do women in those spaces think with and against you know, w the waters and water and the liquid, um, I think could be quite interesting for, for activism. It turns out that uh, in the research of a, a, a colleague, um, Mapule Maulatsi, she's found sort of urban legends around a West African figure called the Mamawati, 
half mermaid, half human, half fish, half human, that have traveled to South African townships and are known by an Afrikaans term, Vata Macy's. And so if you have a look at some of the urban art, graffiti, etc., you have these figures that obviously speak to traditions of both water and land, woman and water. And yet, you know, activism's not paid attention to any of these kinds of urban legends and so on. So I think there may be ways of to try to understand in a more interesting and intense way what it is on our particular street or our particular homestead um, that we can do with both question, you know, ideas of land and water uh, to understand ourselves as citizens and to produce sort of activist logics out of that, but also to understand ourselves as communities with pasts and past traditions. But I'm not sure. I, I, you know, I'm really just putting this work out there so that activists might be able to recalibrate a little bit how they think about space as both liquid and solid. Um, because I think we know intuitively for all of us that we do think and imagine in terms of both liquid and, so and solid, in terms of dreaming of a better life, dreaming of a different place, understanding life and death, managing anxiety about climate change and the loss of water, drought, or what happens when we live alongside rivers and we can expect enormous flooding and we know that the homes that we've built, in fact, are are going to be washed away. Um, and I think people are really grappling with how to imagine this and understand it. So plenty of terrains for activism there. There are all kinds of interesting new figurations and symbols of much earlier traditions. So there's a wonderful novel called Lagoon, which is set off the waters of Lagos by Nedi Okorafor. And she makes the Mamawati figure an enormous figure that emerges from the sea, drenched in oil because of oil leaks, but also with the powers of technology to clean up the seas and waters around Lagos that are toxic waters. Um, and so she invests those earlier urban legends with the new properties of the 21st century and tries to imagine a clean water Lagos. And as she does that, of course, that speaks to activist imaginations, but also to novelistic imaginations. One of the things that bothers me is that we're not putting these different traditions together. And I think that we've been working with the notion of the South or the global South for some years now. But some of us sometimes joke in the way that people from the South can joke, I think, <laughs> um, that Indian scholars are still addicted to India, South African scholars um, write about South Africa, Latin Americanists are really a little bit interested, but really want to talk about their own places, and, and there, of course, there's often a, a language barrier as well. But we're not putting these knowledges together, and yet, you know, in what you've just said, there's an idea of planetary waters that are circulating through the planet and falling as rain, and moving across river systems, and becoming atmosphere again. 
in ways that we're not even on top of. And so it's really time to put these different traditions together and also to insist to the scientists, the earth scientists, that there's a humanities conversation that we have to have around all of these elemental media. We have to inhabit them with um, the forces of the imagination, the ancestral, the spiritual, the, the, the multi-spiritedness and creolizations of these spaces. Um, so I think that that, it, that brings new life. I mean, I think if we're worrying about forms of learning how to live with worlds that die, actually, through climate change, these are ways of sort of reanimating, I think, and bringing alive the resources that we have and that, that we need to protect and reinvest with a kind of a preciousness that is being brought home to us. For people working in critical theory, um, cultural theory, etc., the tendency has been to try to find sort of big ideas that are quite abstract. My reading of the terrain was that somewhere in there was an addiction to human subjectivity that I think other scholars and other traditions started to point out and that it would be useful to think about the non-human world as the world of objects and matter. But that was a complex undertaking because for a lot of people in post-colonial societies, just as they felt that they were coming into visibility and subjecthood, the academy shifted to objects and the world of matter. And so it's a contested terrain. And I think early uh, Anthropocene theory uh, has been critiqued for that. And, and you know that. I mean, there have been ideas of capitalocene and, 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 and a, a kind of a skepticism, which in a place like South Africa you can feel very deeply. At the same time, very little conversation on the progressive left around climate change. You know, we've got too many crises to deal with. We've got too many social issues to deal with. We really can't take on these questions of the planetary. And now, looking sort of three to five years later, and I think really struggling with this collectively and together, there is a way in which we can start to deal with the non-human world um, and still hold on to questions of climate justice and activism in communities um, that are fighting for democracy. Um, and yeah, then I was pointing to a kind of a third wave that I think is emerging and came out of um, oceanic humanities work on the sea, which is now about, well, let's work with the, with the elements themselves. And so I took the notion of freedom, which I think has been so important in late 20th century work, and started to ask the question, well, what does freedom look like in environments that are materially constrained? For example, if there's no water. And so if you're trying to escape or drift out of a system of surveillance or a carceral system or a system of camps as a dispossessed subject in the world, there are few and few places that you can go uh, where you can access the basic conditions of living, which would be water, but also um, the ways in which you can find some kind of abundance and the conditions with which to flourish. So all of those questions come back to issues of water and drought or waterlessness. There's also emerging work on air, of course, air and atmosphere, as we understand pollution and we understand 
the way in which pollution works. So water, air, and of course fire. So, so yeah, characterizing this kind of work as elemental is about, if we take some of the big concepts that we generated in the late 20th century and we put them in a medium, an elemental medium of air or fire, imaginatively we submerge them or we stick them in a um, polluted um, air above a city or a heat dome that we know, we know our heat domes now work because of air conditioning. So apartment buildings have more and more air conditioning and produce a heat dome. The heat falls to the street and keeps people higher up cooler. We know this. So what happens to these, these concepts of um, alterity, encampment, surveillance, freedom, if we put them in a medium and we insist that not only do bodies but ideas live in media, they live in environmental media, they're supported by certain media, they may rely on clean air or being above rather than below water. And so it, you know, you could say, well, that's an abstraction again, and activists might find that an abstraction. But many of us are saying that this is a very useful way of, of actually criticizing some of the concepts that we're using and overusing to understand a world that is changing very fast in terms of its elements and its elemental life. And that we're not going to be able to understand that unless we develop concepts that come out of um, terrains that um, think about how bodies move in water or in air or in relation to fire and so on. Um, and again, we have the archives to start doing this. We just have to uh, look online as to what's happening around the world. But we don't have a language exactly within which to talk about what happens to bodies when they are proximate to wildfires. Or whether, or, or if if they submerged in particular kinds of ways. So therefore, what happens to mines as well? So that is work that I'm drawing from work by someone called Ifor Duncan and his colleague whose name I have not in my notes right here, but it's an article in Eflux magazine. So I just want to make it clear that that notion of weaponizing rivers comes from their work and they've been working along rivers in Bulgaria, Syria, Greece um, and particularly terrains where asylum seekers try to cross. And I tried to transpose that work into African rivers. Um, so I've been thinking about the Zambezi River and the Limpopo River, which are the two biggest rivers in southern Africa. When I was asked to speak about pluviality um, in terms of a project on unsettlement, uh, let me explain that. So when we think about migrant lives or settlement camps all over the world today, we think in terms of settlement. So you arrive at a camp and you settle. But this was a project which was saying, no, in fact, people are in permanent transit more and more across the planet. So they live in states of unsettlement. And I tried to then think about states of unsettlement in huge migrant camps 
in relation to unsettled terrain, you know, landslides, because these are terrains where trees have just been evacuated to create huge camps. And so they are susceptible to landslides and mud. So I talked about the mud lives <laughs> of so many people on the planet today, drawing on Bessie Head's idea of a, living a mud life, um, which is neither exactly water nor land, um, but a mix of the two. So I thought about those, and then I thought about roadblocks. So roadblocks across central, southern, western Africa. And some, some of the reading I did, I found that in one province of the Democratic Republic of Congo, I think there were 274 roadblocks um, as sites of extraction. Yes, I.L. Weissman talks about them as border synonyms, I think, sort of, you know, transposable borders that are set up. And in this article that I read, of course, there, there was a small footnote to say that these often take place alongside rivers. Of course, why would they not? Roads and rivers often go nearby to each other. And then I thought, to, thought about pluviality, mud and flooding, and what this does to migrants trying to cross both borders and rivers. And that led me back to this question of the weaponization of rivers, but perhaps the weaponization by the planet as such of flooded rivers, um, against people who actually need to cross those rivers to gain mobility and political refugees who need to escape from their countries and so on. So the ways in which rivers can sometimes be weaponized by states, but also perhaps the ways in which the planet weaponizes or climate change weaponizes rivers against uh, human bodies um, and presumably animal bodies that are trying to cross. So that would, I thought that was a very interesting sort of metaphorical and material terrain to think about Yes, floods of migrants, floods of animals, um, uh, etc. Uh, it probably means we need to liquefy our idea of a border. Borders are always taken as terrestrial and landed. But what happens when you add in pluviality and flooding? Um, how does that um, shift the notion of a, of a physical border? Is something that I think has not really been attended to. And how do we rethink a, um, um, a resettlement camp with thousands of people in it? when it's completely subsumed in mud. And there are some photographs on the internet of people just bathing in mud. Um, and that reminded me of the wooden sculptures of uh, Noria Mabasa that I showed, the ways in which mud just runs insects and people and animal bodies together in this kind of indiscriminate way that seemed to speak to um, something quite symbolic, um, the, the symbolic and the real, the Lacanian... Um, moment of future climate change. Something's going to happen, right? It may not happen exactly as predicted. There may be some kind of intervention, but something's going to happen and this place is going to be different. But then I think, as you're saying, it's the sort of um, cascading effects. So if you have to start to think about drought, you have to start to think about fish and fish populations. And you have to start to go back and understand that those mega dams that I was talking about earlier, you know, the question of cement, because what cement does is it refuses the capacities of a floodplain around a river in a dam, which is actually very good at managing fish populations. Those natural ecosystems are very good at managing what fish need in order to flourish. And the cement, of course, just completely destroys that ecosystem because it's thought that when there's a dam overspill, the cement will help with that, but in fact it makes it worse. But yeah, I mean, we have to, we have to draw on our slightly uh, sort of science fiction imaginations to figure out 
how to start thinking with fish, how to start thinking with fish populations and what this terrain might look like from the point of view of a particular species of fish. We've barely begun. I mean, we've started saying we need to think from the vantage point of non-human lives and sensibilities, but we haven't figured out, of course, how to do that. Um, So it really jumbles uh, all of our political and imaginative capacities, I think. Um, but what we do know is that it's it's happening in one way or another. So the sense of darkness and fear and anxiety, I think, is quite profound um, of what's going to happen, what's going to happen next. And yet I prefer now to do work less on end times and extinction than on bringing things alive again, how we can bring things alive again in our smaller scenarios. We've just been through several days of discussion on oases, um, which imply a a desert-like terrain. And the oasis is again interesting because one assumes then that that body of water, that pool of water, even if it's in the form of a mirage of an oasis, is where you can be most yourself, most self-reflexive. You can see your reflection in the water at least, it becomes a mirror of human life as we've tried to know it and understand it. And yet in the desert or in drought, there's no reflective surface in any way. I think that's interesting. But also I noticed during the course of our discussions that nobody mentioned what are in all the images of an oasis, which is the tree. And the only African woman to have ever won the Nobel Prize is uh, Wangari Matai, who won it a few years ago for planting millions of trees in Kenya. And she has a very beautiful essay on the power of trees. And I'm very thankful to my colleague, Grace Musile, who's recently put together her essays and speeches and her activist work. And what she comments on is um, the degree to which um, the roots of some trees are able to produce resurgent waters that then produce streams and bring water back to uh, dry terrains. And so as a child, she grew up knowing never to cut down or break in any way the fig tree because the fig tree has a root system which is able to, um, to draw up the groundwaters from the aquifers, to draw them upwards, and as I say, to create these submergent streams. And I really like that idea that you can't have an oasis without those trees and those root systems, but also that some trees are able to produce these resurgent streams and to to help surface water uh, in in ways that others aren't. And so she she says, well, of course we have to cut down trees and we need trees for all sorts of things. But um, pre-colonial communities or indigenous communities or local communities understand about trees, that they can also produce the waters uh, from from the underground uh, to enable 
uh, water to flow again. And she describes going to some of the terrains in Kenya where the Green Belt movement, which is her activist movement, has planted millions of trees. And in fact, when you look down, you see the waters produced by the trees. And so we have to draw trees into this conversation that is now operating below the waterline, at the waterline, the surface, and, and you know within the air as well. We know the trees are very good also for absorbing carbon. So, you know, we're learning a language as we go along. And I think that the, the counter to the processes of desertification, which are both social and climatic, requires us to understand the lives of plants as well, and trees. So I think for many scholars in the humanities, there's some retooling that needs to happen. And some of my colleagues are taking oceanography courses. Others of my colleagues are taking online courses on the histories of plants, etc. And we're, we're trying to, I think, re-encounter these modes of thinking via the, the planet um, and the environment um, that we've not been doing for a long time. We've been absolutely addicted to the human world. So we have in mind those Australian wildfires of two years ago, I think it was, that uh, we now know killed, I think, three billion animals, but also what the images looked like and how terrifying uh, those fires were, of course, the Californian fires and elsewhere. What I've subsequently understood through reading the work of colleagues like Meg Samuelson, who write, who's writing from Australia, is when there's... When there are wildfires in Australia, there are floods on the African coast and so on. I think we're starting to understand, I think she calls it the dipole um, climatic systems that flooding and drought go together or fire and rain go together just in different parts of the world. And that's not something that I'd understood as clearly a few years ago. Um, so while we're reading for fire, we have also to be reading for, for pluviality. Uh, while we're reading for flooding, we also have to be reading for drought. We can't do one without the other. So that's one way of understanding these vast climatic systems, in this case across the Southern Ocean, which is the ocean we know the least about and the ocean which didn't have a name until 20 years ago, I think it is. It just didn't have a name. It didn't exist in human imaginations. It was, you know, we had the Atlantic, the Indian and the Pacific, and then we had this huge body of water between Africa and Antarctica, and we just didn't name it, um, which tells you the, how neglected those waters were. You know, I remember being on the South African coast years ago on holiday beyond Cape Town and lying on the beach, getting some sun, and suddenly a tropical palm tree uh, washed up on the beach. And there are no tropical palm trees on the eastern Cape coast of South Africa. And then I watched the news, I tracked it back, thought about it, started following the route of the tsunami, I think it was in Indonesia, and that palm tree had washed across. So that was a, a fascinating moment of how these systems are connected. And we've often just taken these oceans as surfaces, but of course they're moving objects all the time. But I'm trying to think of the timing of this, but not far off. It was 2021. I was in uh, Cape Town during the Christmas period. And something that just sits with me is, is the funeral of Desmond Tutu, who is a very powerful figure in African political thought on the 1st of January 
in the cathedral in the center of the city and his own struggles and leadership in a movement for political and economic justice in South Africa after apartheid, his funeral, and a lot of reflection in the media about the fact that political justice was in a sense one, in the sense that the legal system of apartheid helped by figures like Mandela and Tutu came to a certain kind of end, but that economic distribution did not take place and economic justice didn't happen. And the disconnect between the two and reflection on the fact that Tutu said, well, I'm going to leave economic justice to the new state, which was assumed to be a progressive state, and I'm going to do the process of political justice, etc. I'll tell you why all this is relevant in a moment. Two days later, after that funeral, a few paces from the cathedral, a dispossessed South African man set a light to the parliament in Cape Town, South Africa's parliament. Turned out that the security guards appeared to be on holiday. There was nobody there. He got in. He set curtains alight. And he set alight the inner chamber of parliament. Incredibly symbolic. And he was essentially saying in interviews later, you know, there's been no difference to my life as a poor man, you know, 20 years later. And I wanted to set this alight, this parliament uh, alight. Um, and so you had the, the fire, the smoke rising from Parliament, very huge, billowing black smoke. And then I remember that um, two days later, there were wildfires all over the mountains of the city. And these mountains do combust sometimes in the summer months. But it, this is being exacerbated due to climate change. And what I want to sort of image for you is the mixing of the fires from certain vantage points of the, um, the fires of arson as a moment of political resistance, mixing with the fires and the smoke of climate change on the mountains around this city. Um, and I don't want to say too much because I'm just starting to work on this, but there's a very strong tradition in South Africa of setting fire as a powerful form of political resistance so that in student movements in 2016, 2017, a number of campus buildings were set alight by students. Subsequently, the African Studies Library at the University of Cape Town was burned by mountain fires that came down onto the campus. There were not adequate firewalls, and it was again so symbolic that the African Studies archives were burned in many cases. So, starting to think about political fire, climate change fire, wildfires that are mixing, the smoke of these fires are mixing. And of course, we know very high in the planetary atmospheres, the smoke from wildfires start to mix and move as a certain kind of cloud that moves through air systems and so on. And so we have also now to think quite carefully about fire as an elemental medium, what it does to air, um, how it might mix with rain, how it might mix with pollution to create toxified atmospheres, but also how... Once again, it sort of combines in this mode of entanglement with political histories of fire and setting alight and burning. And in this instance I've described to you, it was the mixing of these two flames, these two modes of smoke um, that I wanted to hold on to. Because I think in the reporting of, say, Australia or California, 
there was a great deal about these wildfires. But in a place like South Africa, where there's a long political tradition of setting fire, where no other political language or form of activism seems to work, there's a resort to fire. What happens to that language when it now starts to mix with the, the fires of the planet? And when there are mountain fires in Cape Town, sometimes those fires have been set alight, either deliberately or accidentally. And so it's this mode of political narrativizing and environmental elaboration that are mixing together. And we need um, to find languages of entanglement to understand both. And we don't have them.